Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Integration Conversation. My name is Brahm, and the reason that I am wearing this ridiculous outfit is because I am getting ready to go to Miami. That's right, I'm going to Miami November 8th and 9th for the Wonderland Psychedelic Industry Conference. This is going to be one of the first, if not the first, in-person psychedelic industry events, at least in the United States, since the beginning of COVID. So if you've been like sick of being stuck inside for two years because of this stupid pandemic, um, you are going to have a chance to get all of that repressed social energy out at this conference in Miami, November 8th and 9th, okay? So it's going to be an industry conference with the lead investors, the lead companies, the lead researchers. They are all going to be gathered in Miami on November 8th and 9th to talk about the state of the industry, to help introduce you to new companies, to talk about investing strategies, and to sort of talk about the future. Now, of course, um, you know, this is an industry conference, but this is not going to be some boring bullshit khakis and polo shirts, um, you know, photocopier, Dunder Mifflin style conference. Okay, this is going to be in Miami. And one of the key organizers of this conference is today's guest on the show, Richard Scaife. Okay, Richard, he is one of the co-founders of the Conscious Fund. He also sits on the board of Microdose, which is microdose.buzz, which is one of the best websites for keeping track of the state of the psychedelics industry. But what a lot of people don't know about Richard is that in addition to being, you know, one of the OG psychedelic investors, he had a whole career and background in electronic music and event production. So you can guarantee that this is going to be a very interesting, high energy, out there conference. Um, like I said, put on by a guy who has a background producing electronic music events, okay? And then also, even, even if Richard wasn't involved, we're talking about a psychedelic industry conference in Miami. Now, if you have not been to Miami I don't know that that phrase has as much impact as it should for you. I grew up in Miami. I can tell you right now, Miami is the place to have a conference or party. Like Vegas does not even come close to Miami, especially Miami in the winter where the weather is nice and cool. Um, it's just for this kind of stuff, Miami is the fucking best. I'll just say it. Um, like I said, I grew up there. Also, like I said, I'm going to be there. There is, a, I am most likely going to be speaking in some way at this event. So you can come, you can watch me speak. You can definitely hang out with me. Um, I am going to be organizing some sort of after party for this event. Um, you know, not the only after party, but there will be a Brahm integration conversation, empath ventures after party, even if that's just me and the one guy that shows up. So, um, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there ready to learn. I'm going to be there ready to party. I'm going to be there ready to have a good time. I really hope that people can make it. Um, what you want to do is you want to go to microdose.buzz backslash wonderland dash Miami. I'll put the link in the description, but I'll say it one more time. Microdose.buzz backslash wonderland dash Miami. Um, I don't know that the tickets are on sale yet, but you can at least get on the waiting list so that you'll be notified when the tickets are available. And you really want to do that because to be honest, man, if you're trying to get deep into the psychedelic industry as an investor or as a researcher as or as just you know someone who's really enthusiastic about psychedelics i don't think you're going to want to miss this thing you're going to be missing out and um, you're going to be missing out on an awesome excuse to go to miami one of the most fun cities in the country if not the world um, and you know to hang out with me and richard so you know i i think there's there that's i don't know how much more i can say Go to microdose.buzz backslash wonderland slash dash Miami and get on the waiting list for tickets, okay? 
Um, like I said, today's guest, Richard Scaife, he is one of the co-founders of The Conscious Fund, which has invested in many of the companies that I cover on this channel. Um, so, you know, he, he's got a lot of experience in this space. He's worked in venture capital before. The, the guy is quite an interesting cat. Um, I really enjoy talking to him. We talk a lot about what it takes to run a venture capital fund in the psychedelics industry, which is, you know, relevant to everyone, but especially relevant to me since I am also in the process of, you know, currently raising and starting to make investments from my own venture capital fund, which is called Empath Ventures. I always got to plug my own stuff before the show starts. So if you're an accredited investor that's interested in getting involved in the psychedelics industry through a venture capital vehicle, what you're going to want to do is go to empath.vc, www.empath.vc. There's contact info there. Hit me up. I will give you more information about the fund. One last thing before we get to the interview with Richard, if you like this type of content and you want to see me keep doing more of it, then please help support the integration conversation by subscribing to the YouTube channel, clicking like on the video, leaving a comment. If you listen to the audio only version on Spotify or some other podcast platform, you know, press like, press follow, leave a review, whatever. All of that stuff the more likes we get, the more subscribers we get, the easier it is for me to get, you know, interesting guests, which, you know, allows me to bring you more interesting content. So please do that. You can also follow me on Twitter at The Real Brom. You can follow us on Instagram at The Integration Co. All that stuff, as I said, helps grow the reach of uh, the platform and helps us bring you more interesting content. All right. With all that out of the way, let's get to today's guest, Richard Scaife, co-founder of The Conscious Fund. Enjoy. All right. Well, everyone, we are here with Richard Scaife, the founder of The Conscious Fund. Um, Richard, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah. So let's let's maybe talk a bit about you know your background and how you came to be you know a guy running a psychedelic venture fund. I think everyone who's running a psychedelic venture fund has kind of usually an interesting story. So I'm excited for people to get to you know hear yours. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I, I'm one of the founders. Um, one of the founders, so, yeah. Co-founder. Uh, Co-founder. Co-founder, yeah. yeah. Um, three, of us, three of us in total, all, uh, all, all quite different human beings uh, in terms of what we enjoy doing, um, which I think is what you really need in a, in a business relationship. And um, yeah, my, my background, I, I guess in a way I was um, an accidental venture capitalist in that uh, it was one of the very first jobs I had probably 20-something years ago um, when I ended up being inside a, a ventures incubator, which has been run by Deutsche Telekom, who own T-Mobile. Um, so, uh, yeah, didn't really know what a corporate ventures arm was or a, an incubator at this time. In fairness, I just wanted to get out in the north of England, um, whereas from, and I wanted to be living in London. Um, and... Actually, that job then took me on a really bizarre pathway um, into this world because um, it was at the height of the dot-com boom. And I always remember my first boss, who I still keep in contact with, Christine. She's absolutely wonderful. Um, and I remember going to a bit naive. And I said, um, so you said my sort of, you know, my spend limit is like 50 before I've got to come and get um, a sign-off. And she was like, yeah, is, is that enough? And I was like... I don't think I can do much with 50 pounds. And she was like, I don't know, 50 grand. And my job was basically to make a mobile phone operator cool. And what that involved was cool parties, sponsoring cool record labels. Um, and I approached, at the time, the, the biggest trans music label, which was one of my big favorites, a label called Gatecrasher, 
I didn't get a reply to my email. Um, so I approached my favorite hard house label, uh, which is a label called Tidy Tracks. And I did get a response. And um, I said, oh, well, they're up in the north of England. So I ended up going back up to the north. And they picked me up. And I said to the guy um, who was one of the Tidy Boys, I said, you know, I feel like I've met you before. I said, what, what's your previous career? Um, and he was like, well, it's a bit of a, bit of a, you know, bit of a secret one. And I was like, okay, because, uh, you know, I was a number one pop music star. Um, I was a performing rabbit. Uh, I was called Jive Bunny. Uh, and Jive Bunny took lots of sort of 50s and 60s records, spliced them together and made these melodies. Um, and they became number one uh, tracks. And I had gone to interview this guy when I was about 13, 14. And I was on hospital radio because I was a budding radio DJ. Um, and I've managed to get an interview with this number one pop star. Um, so um, I ended up spending a lot of Deutsche Telekom's money with them, sponsoring uh, parties and doing really cool things like we had SMS screens before anybody else had done SMS screens, which is well before smartphones. And we had this concept of a service, which was 140 characters and an app symbol. It wasn't called Twitter, um, called Ubut. Um, and eventually I, I spent so much money with them. They said, do you want a job? And I was like, I know nothing about the music industry. And they said, you know, we think that's probably what we need right now. Um, and at the time it was the number one vinyl label in the UK, but they could see that vinyl was kind of on its, on its way out. Um, They're doing very well with CDs. So I kind of went into... Um, help them understand how they create a digital uh, download service. This is before iTunes existed. And um, I'd, I'd done a fair bit of sort of putting on smaller events. And I'd also sponsored some, some other events um, down on the south coast of England where they used to hire out these holiday centres, a holiday camp, which um, most of your audience in America, it's like, what the hell is a holiday camp? But they, they look a bit more like an open prison than a place than you'd go uh, for holidays. So I'd been to these parties and I thought this is going to work really well for this community. So I kind of threw my hat in, um, you know, brand new into the job. I said, I think we should hire a holiday center and we should put like all of the ravers into this holiday center. And the first event that we did was a sold out success. And, you know, it's electronic music uh, and all of the sort of culture that goes with it. And that was probably now 20 something years ago. And this particular brand still does these weekender events. The audience have grown with it. They now take their children and lifelong friendships have been made. And I always kind of talk about, you know, my journey into psychedelics wasn't through the medical context. It was through the cultural context. But I used to see rooms full of thousands of people having the time of their lives, little to no trouble. Um, and people creating friendships and relationships which have genuinely lasted a lifetime. Um, I ended up going back into tech. I did three or four years in the music business. I guess that was my uh, early midlife crisis. Um, and um, I'd always had a real strong fascination with, with mental health um, and understanding the mind. Uh, in fact, um, I learned how to hypnotize people very, very early on. Um, so I went to a small, a small private school, um, and uh, when one of the teachers didn't turn up, the headmistress's son stood in. He wasn't really a teacher, but um, he, he kind of was tasked to teachers. <laughs> and he was like, clearly you don't really want to learn maths from me. I'm going to teach you something really interesting. 
I'll show you how you hypnotize people. And I learned basically the basics from that and then went and read lots of books on it. So yeah, this real fascination with understanding the mind started to, you know, look at NLP and different sort of, um, you know, talking therapies. And then maybe 10 years ago, um, I'd just done a very successful app. It's a science-based app with a guy called Professor Richard Wiseman, um, which was an app around dreaming. And it was an experiment, and it was to see if we could change the world's dreams. And we used um, the accelerometer in the device. We looked at when people went into the REM stage, and there were some scientific studies which said if you introduce very gentle audio into somebody's sleep, it can manifest in their actual uh, dream state. Um, ended up being a book written about it. And it was a science, you know, ultimately it was a science project. We got global media coverage, we ended up on Anderson Cooper and LA Times and uh, yeah, totally blew up. And I thought, I kind of need a follow-on format from this, but this has to be a real business. Uh, and this is about the same time that people like Calm and Headspace were just coming to the market. So I took my fascination with all things hypnosis and meditation, and we created a product called DigiPill. And we borrowed a lot of the design cues from people like Damien Hurst and Pharmacy. So we made it very, very cool uh, looking, um, had a very modern um, user interface, still on the App Store. Um, I think he probably does 50 downloads a day to uh, Headspace's 50,000. But it was a moment in time where it was level pegging. I used to look in the charts every day, and there'd be Calm, Headspace, DigiPill, or DigiPill, Headspace, Calm. And I went out to try and raise money from the European venture community, and they were very, very uh, suspicious. <laughs> and I was like, well, what is this hypnosis guided meditation, like voodoo rubbish? Um, and I took no for an answer. Um, and uh, guys at Headspace and Calm didn't. They, all the companies which came out of the UK, they jumped on a plane, they flew to the West Coast, and they raised money uh, from the West Coast. Um, and there was a moment in time, this had come out of the Ventures Incubator. I was adamant we should continue with this business. And my co-founders in that incubator wanted to really focus on printing photo books. And I was like, you know, this is not what I want to do uh, with my life. I, I want to push this forward, um, but they were the technical team. So I ended up joining a, a venture capital fund as a partner um, and didn't really enjoy European VC all that much. Um, I've been really lucky to have been mentored by a, a kind of an old school Silicon Valley VC who was living in London for a while. And everything I'd been taught wasn't this style of a, of a European VC. Um, so I was like, ouch, this is not for me. Pull the escape hatch, uh, get out of it. And I started having sort of experimental um, plays with new emerging technologies. So some stuff around blockchain, um, started to look at some of the sort of the cannabis stuff, which was opening up in, uh, in Europe, uh, which is, of course, a lot later than the, the US market. And then I was introduced to Henri. Um, who is one of my co-founding partners in the Conscious Fund. And I'd done a lot of financial tech products and I'd done all the setup of funds. And he was like, I want to do a dedicated fund to this space. And I sort of went away and I looked at who'd been putting money into these very, very early um, psychedelic companies. And I could see like real quality of capital. Um, but there was nobody 
who was really looking at the very early stage. Um, I bumped into a group who are going to launch a venture fund called Field Trip Ventures. Heard of them. And of course, they didn't launch a venture fund. They've done an amazing job uh, at launching a, a network of clinics and a now a drug discovery company. But mm -hmm. I, at Income Reflection, they probably saw the same as us and was like, this market's just too early. Um, so we sat it out. And then it was February, March 2020 when we just saw a real gear change. And we had to move very, very quickly. We started to um, deploy capital into space. Um, and here we are, sort of 18 months later, um, about 21 transactions we've done so far. Um, and it's been a whole, whole lot of fun. That is quite a journey. And it is maybe a bit off topic, but I have to ask since you mentioned it, hypnotism. Um, <laughs> what's, what's the deal with hypnotism? Can you, do you have, how, how does it exactly work? If you want to give like a one minute version of it, just cause I'm, I've always been curious about that. I've never had anyone try to hypnotize me. You're doing a good job right now. Although <laughs> I'm staring into my camera <laughs> instead of the screen. So, you know, you might have to try something else, have, but, but it, I mean, you are ultimately, um, relaxing somebody. Um, you're putting them into a, uh, a receptive state um, in terms of um, their suggestibility. Um, so a lot of it is about learning to pace. A lot of it's about learning to communicate. And those were things which I'd done, you know, on, you know, sort of like my radio days and things like that. So a lot of the, a lot of the skills that you use to communicate are actually what you need to be a proficient hypnotist it's not actually that not that difficult to do I and mean, clearly if someone comes in to see you and you're like just sit down then they are not going to be putting them into a relaxed state of mind and they're not going to follow your you know your guidance if you can present yourself with you know a calm and composed manner they can relax they feel comfortable with you then there's a number of different techniques that you use to put them into uh into that state um, and ultimately, it can be a exceptionally you know powerful tool to use as part of a therapy. So whilst I never, there was a moment actually looking back where I was like, I'm so fascinated by this. I actually want to be a hypnotist as a uh, career choice. Um, but it, yeah, it was nothing more than a hobby. Um, I used to get invited to a lot of parties. It was my party piece. Um, uh, but I haven't done it for now for, for many, many years. Yeah. I was sort of thinking, and you sort of confirmed what I was thinking that, um, the tools of hypnosis may be useful potentially as a part of psychedelic therapy, get it, especially when you're dealing with someone who is maybe new to using psychedelics, right? It's like helping them get relaxed, yeah, I mean, helping the, walk them through the experience that sort of maybe, maybe more useful during the integration piece as opposed to the actual psychedelic experience right. itself. Think, but yeah. Whilst I do not come from a background of understanding um, the chemical compounds, that's very much Henri's side of things, I very much understand sort of spoken therapy and the different techniques which are, are used as part of spoken therapy and, and fully understand why, you know, psychotherapy is an instrumental part of you know, psychedelic medicine for it to be truly yeah. effective. Yeah. So you mentioned that there was sort of this difference in attitudes between the European and English venture capital community and, you know, the West Coast, the California, out where I am. 
Has that changed now that psychedelics are more mainstream? Are there diff- or are there still different attitudes about psychedelics and different levels of openness to about it to psychedelics, depending on what geographies you're looking at? Well, I mean, certainly, I mean, I, 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 there was no sort of conversations around psychedelics when I was a European um, VC, but there wasn't even really a conversation around meditation. So, um, I mean, I, I think the, the really big difference is um, a good US VC and a good European VC very much views you as your business partner. And there's a there's a uh, an equal balance of the power dynamic um, you know, US VCs are hungry to get into deals and, and the European VCs are just a little bit more, I'm doing you a favor, you're not doing me a favor by letting me give you my money. And I just found it as a style was just really not me. Now, there is undoubtedly um, more and more very good um, European VCs, people I really, really respect, but they borrowed that playbook from the US. Um, so that style of investing has very much now started to enter into Europe. And you've seen, you know, very early on, actually, I mean, obviously, people like Excel have had a presence in London for quite some time, but you've got Sequoia there. Um, so, you know, you've got some of the, you know, the real tier one uh, shops having a significant presence, um, you know, in in Europe. So hopefully that... Um, that style will will sort of wash out that older style, um, and it will become a, a little uh, a little more around. You know, you going into business with somebody. You know, you want to wrap yourself around that entrepreneur and, and do as much as you possibly can to to give them the best chance of success, rather than the angry headmaster who's demanding the reports and and actually just forgetting the pressures that are involved in. In running a company, there's, uh, you know, there's pressures running a venture capital fund, but you know, you've got to be good at compartmentalization, in my view. And yes, those are my pressures, and I may have to go to one meeting where, you know, I'm a bit grumpy, but then I've got to be able to change gears and go to the next meeting where I'm super cheerful and super happy and lock that in a box, and uh, and, and that hasn't happened. But realizing that, you know, that entrepreneur journey is quite often certainly for CEOs, um, having been one for, for many years, it's quite a lonely, um, you know, it's quite a lonely place. They, they, they very rarely, you know, feel they can be open and candid and raw. Um, they don't want to sort of convey downwards. Uh, and there's very few people they can convey upwards to. That they, they worry that their board may see them as being weak. Um, uh, so, yes, yeah, it's, it's a lonely place. And I think a very good VC becomes not just an investor, but a, a friend and an ally and somebody you can call you out, um, but you know, also somebody you can prop you up. Yeah, I love that um, angle of like partnership versus you know, someone who's trying to squeeze every last yeah, drop yeah, out you of know, the stone. I like the, the, the venture capital industry certainly for those who've had a bad experience, um, you know, uh, and there are some very sharp practices which which happen um, in the category. Um, you know, it does have a bit of a bad reputation. And I know when, when we sort of first entered this space, there was a, um, there was a resistance, you know, in terms of, ah, the VCs are here. You know, this is, this is going to be really, really bad. Um, and, and, you know, we had to kind of really, really 
show our, our human side and, and show why we were investing into this space before people were accepting and trusting of, of, our, of our motives. And I think there'll always be people who have, you know, deep reservations in terms of capitalism um, entering consciousness. Um, but I do believe there is a place where the two can go together, but it's ultimately a reflection of the individuals who are involved. Yeah, absolutely. And many I've spoken to, you know, a decent chunk of the people that are actively involved on the VC side in this space. And many of them are involved for the same reasons that the entrepreneurs are involved is because they, they've personally absolutely. experienced, you know, the medicine and they want to yeah. do their part in helping to make it available. But at the same time, you, I actually had this conversation with a woman who runs a venture fund. She's not focused on psychedelics, but she was interested in learning about it because she sees, you know, the space is kind of exploding. And, um, I was talking to her on zoom and she's, she's like, yeah, I'm so excited about the psychedelic space. And I, I said, well, why? And she said, well, because it's like a new space and there's a lot of excitement around it. And I was like, yeah, but why are you excited about psychedelics in general? And she, she didn't really have an answer. And I was like, well, let me, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever done psychedelics? And she was like, oh God, no, you know? And I was like, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying you have to be, you know, a, a psychedelic enthusiast to be involved in the space, but I was like, I think that you may find that many entrepreneurs are going to be hesitant to work with you if you are not someone who personally, uh, absolutely. Is it, it, it would be yeah. like if you're running a crypto startup and an investor says, Hey, I think that Bitcoin and Ethereum are bullshit and I don't hold any, but I want to invest in your crypto startup. You know, it just wouldn't make yeah. any sense. So yeah, I, I think no, that the, the quality VCs are people who understand what this is all about and have probably been involved with it, at least personally for, you know, a couple of years going back. Um, but when, when you were going out and raising that initial fund, what was the, I mean, this, you, you guys were pretty early. You said, you know, early 2020, when you started doing this, did you have to do a lot of education um, on the LP side, like sort of explaining to them what was happening and what they were investing oh, in? Still do, yeah. still do. Um, ranging from, am I going to jail if I give you any money? Um, to misunderstandings of where the market is likely to sort of go, to not quite understanding, you know, the role of the existing regulatory agencies and the existing, um, you know, clinical frameworks um, that are in place. So yeah, there's a, a lot of um, a lot of education. Um, I very rarely bumped into any hostility. Um, we often would actually hear things like, I was never going to invest into the cannabis industry, um, but I'm really comfortable investing into this sector. And I think we've found quite often, as you build up um, relationships with LPs, they start to become very open with you and they tell you the real reason why they've invested into this space, you know, and, and these sometimes are very, um, uh, you know, quite sort of deep and emotive um, areas. Um, and then, you know, puts, puts them, you know, I guess in a, in a way in a sort of a kind of vulnerable place. So, um, and sometimes that happens even on the first call. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's generally, uh, you know, from a motivational perspective, yeah, nobody wants to lose money. Um, uh, there's, there's plenty of amazing not-for-profits, you know, you can simply donate your money to. So we always have a responsibility to, you know, to seek returns. But there is, I would say, generally always a, a motivation, either a fascination with the science um, 
an interest in college education, um, a love of electronic music. <laughs> there is, you know, a family member who has had negative outcomes through conventional medicine, their own personal experiences. Um, there is, there's always um, a very, very strong reason. And I, I think what, what, we, what we're starting to see now is with a lot of the sort of companies which are coming forward, which are dealing with dementia, Alzheimer's, strokes. These are things where you kind of like reflect and you say, actually, this could happen to me. There's almost a small sort of arrogance. So, well, I'm never going to be addicted to heroin. So this, you know, this this whole hypergain thing. I'm not. I've never been depressed. Yeah, yeah. I'm never going to be depressed. Which, which you know, there for the grace of God, you hope that. Well, you know, the, they, the odds are never not going to be depressed. You know, fifty percent of people at some point in their life get diagnosed with some sort of mental illness. That doesn't yeah. mean the diagnosis stays yeah. with you forever. But you have a coin flip at being diagnosed with something at some point. So, I think, uh, you know. absolutely. But I think it's it's that sort of it's this sort of paradigm where people just go, "Well, that, that couldn't happen to me." But then you've now got these, these these range of conditions where you know you just don't know if those are going to happen to you. And I think you know we find with people who've who've got you know very little experience with their own personal mental health or very close family connections, they then sort of graduate and they want to sort of have conversations about those because those are ones where they're going, actually we do have um uh, you know, history of, uh, you know, dementia in, in our family. I do know somebody who's had a horrendous stroke. Um, so that, that tends to be the way the conversation yeah. goes. And, and it is interesting. You mentioned that now there are these companies that are looking at things like dementia and Alzheimer's and so on. Um, 18 months ago, I don't think that really was the case. People were focused mainly on depression, anxiety, and that sort of thing. Um, how do you see the industry shifting? Like what, besides, you know, looking at other indications like depression and, or sorry, like Alzheimer's and dementia, how do you sort of see the industry shaping and in what ways are the, com- the companies that are sort of forming now and what ways do those look different than the companies that maybe popped up, you know, 18 months ago? And where do you think the industry is going? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, there were, I mean, there, there was a very small number of companies looking at the more, let's call it ex- exotic conditions, people like, uh, you know, Elusis Benefit Corporation, um, you know, uh, I remember sort of looking at that, their deck at the same time we were looking at, uh, you know, a lot of the psilocybin, um, you know, and sort of depression uh, related ones. And that sort of jumped out and went, you know, wow, okay. And then jumped out actually when we spoke to the, the founder, just how long he'd been focused um, on that. Um, but in terms of uh, the direction of, of travel, I, I see a moment of time and time where um, you know legislation allows for federal government to support uh, research. So significant amounts of capital in the US will become available in the same way that small amounts have been available in Germany and relatively large amounts have just been made available in Australia. So there'll be some interesting. Um, uh, funding pools, which become available, um, which will lead to more and more pioneering um, research. I think the direction of travel in terms of commercial companies which come to the space is they're going to be dealing with very large um, conditions and, but, and quite complex ones, but not the ones that we typically associate right now with, with psychedelic medicine. Um, so, you know, those are the... Um, the 
the schizophrenia, the Alzheimer's, the dementias, um, you know, women's health-related, pain-related. So I think we'll see more and more of those. Um, companies who um, find new ways to, to deliver uh, the medicine, um, so delivery mechanisms, um, more effective ways um, of interrogating um, receptors, um, and more and more use of technology uh, in terms of the monitoring of, of patients, looking at efficacy, and more and more use of technology in the drug discovery stage so that compound selection can, can work at, at sort of massive horsepower. Um, and I think those will be the, the trends. Areas that I really want to see more investment going into is the last mile. Um, you know, in terms of building out the, the therapy centers, which are going to be needed, um, it frustrates me when I hear investors who are um, looking at this sector holistically. I mean, if you're just writing one or two investment checks, put your money where you want to put your money. But if you are a, an investor who is dedicated to the sector, you have to put focus and capital into those because if we don't have those locations, then you know, it is going to be really, really difficult for patients to get access. So funded at all levels, you know, we've funded companies who are, um, you know, delivering through public health care systems. We funded companies which are delivering to the premium uh, end of the market. So I think it's really, really important, you know, that those types of companies are able to achieve uh, funding um in the same way that the more sort of um, frothy, excitable sort of drug discovery companies get money because they're super important. Yeah, you know, speaking of that that last mile problem, there's there's somewhat of a debate between people who think that clinics are kind of the end game; everything's going to be done in clinics, and then there are other companies that are sort of convinced that. Well, not only do clinics not scale, but it's just like it's impossible to really get one in every city. So really the future is going to be, you know, um, like basically doing psychedelics while your trip sitter is on a Zoom call with you or something like that. Do you think that that and, and you see companies actually doing this, right? Like Mindbloom. The honest answer is there's a place for all of it. I mean, one of our um, you know, technology companies is developing technology to be able to remotely monitor somebody. You know, and, and read for um, you know potential adverse reactions, and I think you know when you go to a regulatory body and you say, "Look, this is a medicine which is going to put somebody potentially into an altered state of mind, and we're going to want to do it at home." Wow, you've just raised the the, the bar quite significantly, and I think that's where you're going to need to have uh, technology to to manage any sort of potential adverse reactions. And yes, to achieve ginormous scale, then, you know, we need a lot of therapists that are trained. We need a lot of therapy centers. But in any economy, you know, there is going to be the premium end. There's going to be the technology-driven end. It's going to be the, you know, the state, um, the state-provided end. And all of those, all of those buckets, um, you know, need to be um, filled. Yeah, no, you're totally right. There's there's room for all of those different uh, vectors of deployment, I guess. So, 
you sort of just described all the different opportunities that you see in the space and the different lines of business that are interesting. So now, you know, the next step in the VC process is you're looking at companies that are involved in these spaces and you have to do due diligence on them and you have to decide if they're a good investment or not. Can you maybe give some insight into what that due diligence process looks like? Like, how do you determine if a company is a good one to get invested with or not? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, I know that's a, that's a, a question you could write yeah, a book I mean, about uh, to answer, but I mean, the, fundamentally, you, you're looking at backing high quality teams. So you know, you really want to understand what their motivation is for being involved in this space, what their professional background is, what's drawn them uh, to this. You know, have they spent 20 years at Pfizer? but they've had the most exciting garage in the world. And this has always been their, their passion. You know, they are an expert um, medicinal chemist. They just couldn't, you know, forge out a career in this. Um, we meet some very interesting people um, who've got that type of background. Um, you, know, are, are they, you know, are they passengers, tourists, or long-term residents? You know, why are they doing this? Um, so I think you go through, you go through that. Then we, we do a lot of sort of cross-referencing in terms of, you know, where do they sit in the industry? Who have they interfaced with? Um, who knows them? We then go quite deep into the science, um, and we have a number of different specialists who sit around us. Um, and we tend to sort of pull out of those conversations, and we ask the, the punchy CEO um, who's got, you know, great experience of raising capital and capital markets to also pull out that conversation because we want to go scientist to scientist. Um, and they will then have serious, sensible, scientific conversations. They'll work through a lot of um, uh, conversations. We often get really pleasant um, feedback from companies in terms of the quality of people that we've brought. Um, and they've had really healthy debates. Um, and then we will sort of draw, you know, we'll draw a decision um, in terms of, you know, whether it's going to be a, a good fit for us. We tend to look um, for portfolio companies which are um, quite complementary to each other. So we're sort of trying to, you know, work out, you know, can this company draw benefit from that company? Is there some really natural synergies? And, and avoiding conflicts as well, which in a um, very fast-moving world can sometimes occur because companies pivot and you're like, oh, you know, we invested into this company six months later. And they're not quite the same. They feel a bit more like that one that we invested into it a year ago. Um, and then we, we have processes in place in terms of making sure that we can still receive, you know, very confidential information and we, we compartmentalize it. Um, because I go back, you know, the, the trust and the relationship that you build with those founders and entrepreneurs is, is super important. And it's, it is still a very, very small sector. And, um, you know, in the same way that we will go out and we will reference check entrepreneurs with, with other people in the community, I hope that entrepreneurs go out and do the same and, you know, they, they check um, the checkout that we check out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a complicated process. And I think, like you said, the, the quality of the team is kind of everything, especially when you're talking about a very early stage company doing something like drug research where uh, results are and, like years away the, at best, right? And some of the best results that we've had so far 
the business that is currently executing very well is not the business that we looked at um, and made an investment decision on. Um, we still like to think that that would have been a good, viable business. Um, but through a process of you know, iteration and the mini pivots, um, they became different companies, different people joined them. And, you know, we're very fortunate to, you know, have had some pretty exceptional returns on companies who've followed that pathway. And I think that falls back to what we go back to at the beginning, saying they were very competent, strong entrepreneurs, and we backed them because of that. And when they discovered there was perhaps some rinky-dinks in the way that they wanted to do things, um, they they changed path and, and it's worked out very well for them. Yeah. And so, um, similar question, but what, what's it like working with the other venture capitalists in this space? Do you feel that um, psychedelics is a bit more collaborative and less competitive than traditional venture capital, or are these psychedelic venture capitals sort of fighting over deals and getting onto these cap tables of these different companies? Um, we've got friends and we've got some frenemies. I wouldn't say we've got any enemies. Um, so we've got some healthy competition. We've got other people we're really transparent with. You know, there's a mutual um, uh, respect there. I can send a deal to them. We've yet to do any sort of terms on that deal. And I don't have any worries that they're going to, you know, take that valuation, double it, and uh, and make them an offer uh, that I can't afford to. Um, so... I think ultimately there, there will be um, sharp elbows. Um, the best companies do not have any problems attracting capital. Um, but I, I take every opportunity to meet an entrepreneur as an opportunity to set out why you know our capital will will deliver. We hope the most the most value. And actually, sometimes you know when other VCs come along um, and they wanted to allocate and rounds of being. Um, uh, you know, pretty full up. We've looked at it holistically. We've kind of, you know, encouraged the entrepreneur to take a little bit more. We've taken a little bit less. We've got some other people into the cap table. Um, I think that's a really sort of good way of doing it. Um, somebody coming along, sort of like growth tech investing, saying, you know, what did they give you? I'll double the valuation, but I want the whole round. Um, I'd be really sad to see that as a style of investing um coming into the space and and again i I would question the quality of entrepreneur who who feels all of a sudden just because a a third party has told them their business is worth twice as much um now believes their business is worth twice as as much so it may happen but i hope it doesn't happen and you know we've been through what we've done with microdose um you know we started off as a uh, you know, as a megaphone for the Conscious Fund, we've been really, really collaborative and, and making sure that we, you know, we support other funds, emerging managers, because um, we, we truly believe that, you know, we, we win this when we all run together. Yeah, I agree. And um, you guys have done, you know, it, it, you can clearly see like there are other venture people that speak at your conferences. I think I'm going to be hosting a panel in September. So yeah, I appreciate that everything you guys are doing, you guys really are sort of like the, uh, at least the digital hub of, you know, the industry, which I think is really cool. Um, do you, you, do you think that there, when you started out, there wasn't that much capital in the space now, 18 months later, do you think that there's too much capital in the space? Uh, no, I don't think there's too much okay. capital. Um, it, if anything, 18 months ago, there was probably um, 
a bit more loose capital. I think it was difficult for people to sort of know what a hit looked like. You know, a hit was, or will be public in two weeks, and everybody would sort of rush in. Um, so I think people have now got a better feel for what success um, would possibly look like. Um, so they've probably been a little bit more choosy. Um, I think it's probably harder to get a bad company funded now and easier to get a good company um, funded. Yeah, the, there was a lot of super low quality um, you know, last year and uh, a lot of low quality that just somehow was able to, you know, RTO. And I guess they had a PowerPoint that had yeah, psychedelics on the like, front page. Listen, and uh, yeah, but it was the early cannabis raising, Cowboys days. Five million, we'll have a drug in the market in a year and we're doing an RTO in eight weeks. Yeah. Um, and it's like, mm, yes, yeah, sure. Yeah, it was a little crazy, but I'm glad that there's at least some semblance of sanity now. Um, so so what's what's next for you know the conscious fund and microdose? I, I know I think on your website I saw that uh, you guys were maybe looking into doing a SPAC. Is that still on the table? Uh, what, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it is a new form of uh, SPAC model, um, and we're we're actually taking a new form of approach in terms of how we finance that model. Um, so it's still working its way through. Um, the regulatory pathway, um, we're actually super close. Um, so uh, we're hopefully it's going to be out the other side very shortly. For us, it is one of many. So they're thematic in nature. Um, and we hope it provides a an interesting liquidity pathway um, and access to a different type of capital. Uh, in particular for companies where senior management don't want to go on that journey themselves. They don't want to take their own company public. It's not their area of interest. Um, so, you know, that sort of guardrails in terms of going uh, public, um, we think is going to be quite appealing to certain types of um, companies and obviously being able to access the, the capital that comes from being in the public domain and then building out a sort of a core team of people who can really help those companies uh, when they are public companies in terms of their IR and their PR and all the reporting standards that they need to adhere to. Yeah, well, novel um, novel SPAC model for novel psychedelic molecules. I, I like it. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> innovating on all fronts. And, um, you know, what else is on the horizon for you guys? More conferences, more, um, you know, more media stuff? Like, what else can people sort of, you know, look forward to? Yeah, I mean, we've been big fans of... Um, getting in very, very early and, and seeing, um, you know, real greenfield opportunities um, and doing something about it, not just saying, hey, wouldn't it be good if someone did this? Um, well, we'll just sit and wait. Um, so for us, there'll be more focus and dedicated team um, because a lot of the work which is done very early as being the, the general partners of the Conscious Fund um, um sort of the incubation studio side of what we do. So we're putting a, a dedicated team together just to work on on that. So um, like sort of, sort of like an accelerator it. program kind of, or? But, uh, more of a studio. Okay. Um, it's just sort of seeing gaps in the market, bringing together very high quality teams, um, getting it ready, polishing it, and then taking it out to the, the ventures team for investment and to other investors. Um, small number of projects a year, 
Um, and last year, you know, our, our focus was really building a lot of the scaffolding that we saw that was missing in the industry. So microdose, helping establish the Psychedelic Medicines Association. This year, we looked and said, why is nobody working um, with machine learning? So we have April 19 as a portfolio company. And now uh, it's sort of really been looking at the, the really big, harder to solve uh, drug discovery um, uh, issues. Do you want to expand on April 19 a little bit? Like what, what is that for those who are not familiar? Yeah, so April 19 is headed up by Professor Saran Guntalaki, um, OBE, um, which is like a certificate you get from the Queen to say that you've been very good, um, which he got for his uh, services to entrepreneurship. Um, he's a visiting professor at UCL. Um, he's arguably one of the smartest human beings um, I've ever met. He's also in Malta at the moment, and uh, hopefully in a few weeks' time we'll be able to say why he's here. Um, uh, he sold his last machine learning business, I think it was probably about 15 years ago. Um, he developed it um, to detect um, fraud patterns inside stock trading, inside of trading, and then felt the right thing to do was to give a lot of his life to academia. Um, and uh, we spent quite a, a lot of time together. He was working on machine learning um, for um, another area of drug discovery. And I said, look, I, that's great. Um, but there are quite a lot of people who are already quite far down that path. Um, and that makes it more difficult to, to raise money and differentiate yourselves. Let me tell you what I've been doing. Um, and um, he became very, very fascinated with it, established a, a great team. Um, the business has become operationally profitable, um, which is wonderful. Um, and will play out in more detail. It's very sort of, very non-shouty um, in terms of what they can do. They don't just kick the AI word around because it sounds buzzy. Um, uh, you know, they, they are people who've spent 20 plus years working in that, that area. Um, they're going to play out at uh, Wonderland, the microdose event, the disciplines that they've been building um, in terms of using computational power as part of drug discovery and also using computational power as part of therapy uh, delivery. So there's an extra arm to uh, April 19, which is called Selena. Um, and uh, I think Selena will sort of break cover fully uh, in the early part of September. Um, it's very interesting and innovative technology, uh, which is being used in therapeutic settings. So, um, yeah, don't really get their hands wet. Don't touch any of the compounds in a physical form. They do everything in a, in a computer model. It's and it's cool that those guys have been doing machine learning since before machine learning was cool. You know that there's a lot of like high yeah, machine learning trained, but it's good that they've yeah. uh, had a whole career doing it. That's very cool. And uh, you mentioned Wonderland, the Miami conference. Do you want to hype that up a little bit and tell people about that? Yeah, um, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you look back at my, uh, you know, my previous career, throwing um, big raves, I call them what they were. Um, you know, I love to put on a good party. And, um, you know, when we did the very first um, microdose psychedelic event in April of 2020, uh, we had an after party with Rick Doblin on Zoom. And I remember just thinking to myself, whoa, 
wonderful eclectic group of people we've just had for two days. I cannot wait until we can actually do this, you know, in the real world. I'm guessing it's going to be like six months from now. And of course, everything keeps on slipping and sliding. Originally, we thought we're going to do one in Toronto. We're going to do one in San Francisco. Unfortunately, those areas um, have not sort of yet started to open up enough to allow it. So we started looking at places where we could very safely, uh, in a very, very disciplined way, deliver a tremendous experience. And, you know, we're all really fortunate to be involved in a sector which is a little bit... uh, a little bit on the weird and wonderful side. And, you know, I said, look, we don't want this to feel like you're going to a photocopying conference. Um, This is not Xerox's new uh, print machine that we're all coming to look at. This is a fascinating new area of medicine, which is, you know, being reborn with some incredible people. Um, So we want to deliver a experience. So we found this amazing uh, theatre, in Miami, um, the Adriana Arsh Center, um, which holds 2,400 people. Um, and uh, that's where we're going to be hosting Wonderland on the 8th and the 9th of November. Um, incredible production values, um, themes in rooms, um, great speakers, microdose awards. Um, the only thing we're not doing is an after party. Um, we said let everybody do their own after parties because I don't want to be the person who has to pick the DJ um, because we've got such a, you know, you've got student affiliations and you've got 75-year-olds. I'm like, how we please everybody? So we said let's not do an after party because lots of people are wanting to do their own thing. Um, but, yeah, for, for two days, one night, um, then, you know, we really want to entertain, excite bring a lot of people who've yet to have any sort of experience with psychedelic medicine, be that from an investment uh, perspective, um, opportunity perspective, and bring the industry together. Because, you know, we've got portfolio companies who've actually yet to meet each other in real life. Um, They're in different parts of the world. So we wanted to create this experience and we've also got a lot of spaces where people can sort of hang out and get to know each other um, and bring the whole psychedelic medicine business community together for what is really the, the first time since this industry that we now know existed. Yeah, man, I'm so excited. I've been itching just for the return of in-person events in general, but like especially psychedelic related in-person events. So I'm definitely going to be at that event, by the way, if anyone wants to go hang out with me. Um, I've also been speaking to the person that you have organizing the speakers about potentially being involved in one of the panels there. So there's a chance that you might get to see me speak there. And uh, there will absolutely, without question, be a Brahm after party (laughs) in some capacity (laughs) for for anyone who wants to get and see what kind of after parties I like to get up to. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. and and the age, I I actually, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I, um, I, I lived in Miami before moving out to LA. I sort of like spent my young adult years there. And uh, so I'm pretty familiar with Miami and the Adrian Arch Center is a beautiful venue. So I think it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah. So Richard, we're kind of coming up yeah, on I mean, the, uh, oh, go ahead. I mean, go the ahead. whole world of, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a whole world of responsibility that comes with doing something uh, of this size and this scale. And that's, 
you know, one of the things we will be conveying to people, you know, there is a lot of responsibility to actually execute this event safely. Um, and there will be things which are just not going to feel quite the same as the last time that you went into a big room two years ago. But that is the responsibility that you have to wear if you want to do an event of this size at this moment in time. Um, but we're still going to make it a lot of fun and we'll have some flashing lights and music. Fantastic. <laughs> well, um, you know, I think we're kind of coming up on the end of our hour, Richard. Is there anything, that, any sort of closing thoughts that you have that you want to leave the listeners with before we go our separate ways? Uh, no, I mean, it's just been wonderful. Thank you very yeah. much for, for hosting me. And uh, yeah, hopefully by the time that this, um, I'm tempting fate here, but by the time that this gets transmitted, the Wonderland tickets uh, will be on sale. Um, if if they're not yet on sale, then I'll probably have more grey hair than I've got um, right now. A few final bits that we've got to kind of work through. Um but yeah, please uh, please make your way down to Miami and, and join us for a safe and fun event on the 8th and the 9th of November for Wonderland. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Richard. And I'm looking forward to hanging out with you in person in Miami. Fantastic. Thank you, Brom. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. You have a good one. <laughs>